Greetings, Oan Sangha. It's wonderful to see everyone and a special welcome to Cole and Jordan, uh, both of whom uh, have uh, joined us for the first time. So welcome and glad, glad you're here. The study of Zen is the study of the self. Nikolai mentioned that we have recently put a rover on Mars and we are going to study and explore and investigate a planet which is I think something like 140 million miles away from Earth. And so we do this amazing exploration of something very, very far away. But our practice is to study something very intimate, something so close that we sometimes don't even bother with it. Much more interested in studying what's out there rather than what's in here or in our own personal lives. So this study of the self this investigation, this exploration that we do is fascinating, perhaps more fascinating than exploring any foreign planet. And it's constantly revealing new insights, this study, this exploration. And just a couple of days ago, I learned something new about this self. And I can't think of a better group of people to share it with than you. I happened to be watching a film called In and of Itself, which I highly recommend. And there appeared in this film a story which I had heard many, many times, and I suspect you have as well. It's a story which actually appeared uh, in uh, the Pali Canon, the, the Buddhist writings, the sutras, early. It's an early Hindu story. But over the centuries, it has... Uh, evolved and has many, many versions. It's even a children's, has become a children's story. And it's the story of the elephant and the six blind men. I see Kelly is shaking her head. I suspect that many of you have heard this story about these six blind men who happened to be walking through this field and encountering an elephant. 
being blind, they were very curious about this being that they had encountered. And being blind, they used their hands to examine and study this being. And the first one felt its trunk and concluded that it was a snake. And the second one felt its, its legs and concluded that it was a tree. And then one felt its tusks and felt and concluded that it was a speeder. And the tail became a rope. And the side of the elephant, oh, it, this is a wall. So each of them had a different experience of this being and started arguing with one another about what it really was. And finally, they convened and kind of figured out that it was probably an elephant. They finally came to consensus. This story is often told to illustrate the limited perspectives that we each have as to what is real, <laughs> what is true. That we have a very subjective take on reality. And that often what comes to be true I kind of call it the Wikipedia version of truth. We, we kind of all come together and we kind of come to some agreement as to uh, what is real and what isn't. So this is a story that's often used to illustrate how subjective and limited our particular um, perspectives are and that we should be humble and be open to various perspectives and to coming to some kind of mutual agreement about what's real. But in this particular film, the, uh, the man who was conducting this show, dig was able to dig deeper into this story. And I found it quite fascinating because he claimed that though there are thousands of versions of this story, it's been told so many times in so many ways. The one thing that all of these stories share in common is that not one single one of them considers what the experience might have been for the elephant. This has really become a story about who the elephant is that the elephant didn't write. It's a story about the elephant that blind people wrote. So 
So if we take the perspective of the elephant, so imagine yourself standing in a field, listening to the birds as Lois does, smelling the jasmine, appreciating the landscape, the sea you know, in the distance, uh, about appreciating all the life around you. And suddenly six blind men come around <laughs> and start poking at you. <laughs> start poking at you and trying to figure out, you know, who you are. And then they get together and they reach a consensus about who you are. And then they announce to you, <laughs> we've decided that you're an elephant. How would you feel? I suspect, as we'll see, perhaps this isn't so different from what it's like to be a human being. What if these blind men were wrong? After all, they, they are blind. What if they did stumble upon an amazing being. And in fact, this being were, was in fact made up of ropes and trees and spears and snakes and walls. And that in fact, what they were touching wasn't this strange and magical creature that they had never come upon before. And there was no name for, but they convinced themselves that it wasn't this magical, amazing creature. It was something that everybody could understand, which was an elephant. And even more distressing than that, is that they tried to convince this amazing being that it was just an elephant. <laughs> that it was an ordinary, intelligible being. And they convinced this amazing being that it was just what they had agreed it was. Now, if no one was there to correct them, no one who loved this being and who was not blind, who saw this being for what it truly was, if that, if that correction wasn't made, that being would never know how special how exceptional, how profound and mysterious it was. If there was no, nobody there and no, nothing to correct this blindness.
Well, fortunately for us, there was and always will be those who do care out of compassion, out of wisdom to remind beings who they truly are. These are called bodhisattvas. These are Buddhas who see deeply, who are not blind, but who see deeply the amazing beings that we are. A beings who don't have an intelligible name, who are beyond any name, So Buddhist teachings inspire us to write our own amazing stories. Though we are inextricably connected with all things, we are not defined by the perceptions conceptions, categories, and descriptions of others. Even when they agree <laughs> about who we are. Even when all these blind men and women agree, we, we need to be reminded that we're not defined by that. The inevitable blindness of external eyes can only touch the surface of who we are. Because this is a profound ignorance, when we are seen by blind eyes, of course we're going to be seen as incomplete, as having flaws, as having something wrong with us. Our practice enables us to discover the perfect being, the mysterious being, the incapable of being defined being who we truly are. Our practice affirms this perfection. Nothing missing, nothing hidden, nothing added. And that's why we practice shikantaza. Just sitting. Because we trust our minds, we trust our perfection, 
we cherish the openness of who we are. And we sit to empty as much as possible information, techniques, strategies, rules that fill our mind with who we should be or how we're lacking. We don't re uh, rely on guided meditation. Some of you do enjoy guided meditation and benefit from it. But Shikantaza is not guided meditation because we don't need anything more to occupy our minds than just the present moment. Just being who we are moment after moment. It's easy for guided meditation to slip into being a form of hypnosis and putting us into some kind of trance. This is not what we practice. It's also a practice that can, can result in something we call mind control. Shikantaza is not about controlling your mind. We trust, we trust the mind. It does not have to be controlled. This amazing mind, spacious, open, is the mind that can catch a Frisbee immediately, doesn't have to think about it. This is a mind which sometimes in Zed we say, can reach for your pillow in the middle of the night. We just find it. We don't have to think about it. We reach for it and there it is. This is the mind which can sit in front of, can sit in, a, in an optometrist's office in front of this machine which says, clear, not clear. Which is clearer, which is not clearer. And immediately, number one, clearer. This is the mind that can see clearly without having to think about it. This is the mind that can look at a puppy or a dog and smile immediately. This is the mind that way back in the time of Buddha, he held up a flower and Kasyapa in the audience smiled. 
while probably everyone else was thinking to themselves, what's he doing? Why is he holding up this flower? What is the meaning of this? What's the symbol here? How do I interpret that? <laughs> no. And Buddha said, you're my first disciple. You understand the teaching. This is how the teaching is transmitted. Not by a lot of external interpretations, not by a kind of blindness of preconceptions, concepts. This is not about mind control. This is about really being present to what arises. And if a flower arises, if a Frisbee comes your way, if somebody needs a hug, there it is. This is the mind we cultivate. This is the being. This is the being we cultivate. As I said to Matt the other day, our practice is very much often compared to psychotherapy because it is, it is a, a transformative practice. But I realized that in psychotherapy, the therapist is interested in your problems. In Zen, the Dharma teacher is interested in your perfection, not your problems. That's the difference between a kind of mundane path and a spiritual path. So let go a feeling that you have to control your mind. No need to control your mind. Just cultivate the empty field of awareness. Just cultivate the empty field of awareness. Shikantaza. What an amazing being. What amazing beings.